This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm your host, Eamon Ormset. Today, I'm joined by Noam Perry. Before we get into our discussion, a few news briefs. Senator Bernie Sanders' resolution brought under Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act was tabled in a 72-11 to 11 vote on Tuesday, January 16th. The resolution would have forced the State Department to report on Israeli human rights violations in Gaza. Amber El Ayan, a doctor working with Doctors Without Borders, said on Thursday, January 18th that the conditions at Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus are deteriorating quickly as Israel continues to bomb areas around the medical center. Civilians had fled to this hospital because of Israel's ongoing targeting of residential buildings in Khan Yunus. These attacks come as the Palestinian Ministry of Health says that the number of Palestinians killed in Israeli attacks in the Gaza Strip since October 7th has increased to at least 24,620, with 61,830 wounded. Israel and Hamas reached a deal to deliver medicine and humanitarian aid to civilians in the Gaza Strip in exchange for getting medication to Israeli hostages. On Thursday, January 18th, Ashraf al-Qudra, the spokesman for the Ministry of Health in the Gaza Strip, gave a press conference where he said that the medical aid received today barely meets 30% of the territory's needs. Noam Perry is the Strategic Research Coordinator of the American Friends Service Committee's Action Center for Corporate Accountability. He coordinates the Investigate Project, researching corporate complicity in state violence and human rights violations, including the U.S. prison, border, and surveillance industries, as well as military occupation and apartheid in Palestine and Israel. Before joining the AFSC in 2017, Noam was teaching in the human rights program at San Jose State University. Born and raised in Tel Aviv, Noam holds a Bachelor's of Science in Physics and a Master's of Arts in Geography from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and a PhD in Law and Public Policy from Northeastern University in Boston. Noam, welcome to Understanding Israel-Palestine. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to begin by helping our listeners understand the history of the organization that you work for, the American Friends Service Committee. We can also speak a little bit about their work specifically in Palestine and Israel and the history of that. Can you share a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. The American Friends Service Committee is a Quaker social justice organization. So the the Friends in American Friends stands for Quakers. It's an old organization. It launched more than 100 years ago during World War I. Quakers being a pacifist people, they formed the American, the American Friends Service Committee initially as a way to help people contribute in non-military ways to their community during World War I. And it has grown a lot. Uh, today, we have programs in uh, many countries, and we have dozens of programs across the United States. We do a lot of work in the United States on prison abolition. We do work on uh, immigrant rights and immigrant justice. We, we do work in Palestine, as you mentioned. We have a program in, in Gaza. We have staff in Gaza. We have staff in, in Jerusalem and Ramallah. Our work in Palestine started with the crisis of 1948. The 1948 war, of course, created a large refugee problem. It was the largest since World War II, which was to, ended just five years earlier than that. 
And during World War II, the American Defense Service Committee worked a lot on the refugee problem in Europe and actually received the Nobel Peace Prize at the time for that work. And so when the 1948 war happened and more than 700,000 Palestinians became refugees, the United Nations, which was a young organization at the time, it was three years old. UNRWA didn't exist yet. UNRWA is the agency that right now manages uh, relief efforts for Palestinian refugees that did not exist. And so UNRWA turned to American Friends Service Committee, uh, us, and uh, the Red Cross to set up relief efforts for refugees. Uh, AFSC was in charge of the Gaza area. That was the first time AFSC started being involved in, in Palestine. And what happened is a quite interesting story, actually, that I'm, I'm really proud of. Not a long time after setting up these relief efforts, I forget, but maybe it was two or three years after that, AFSC decided to stop doing that. They said, well, the, the obvious solution for these refugees is for them to go home. Therefore, this is not a humanitarian problem. This is a political problem. We don't see how we can be helpful in resolving this problem because Israel is not cooperating and is clearly not interested in letting the refugees go back home. And therefore, we do not want to be involved in that anymore. I'm, I'm really proud of that little piece of history. And we've been working ever since in, in, in Gaza and in Jerusalem and Ramallah. There was a program in Israel for a while. How are your colleagues doing in Gaza? Thank you for asking. They are not doing well. They're alive. We have two we have two full-time employees in Gaza. We get updates from them not regularly, but uh, I know that they're surviving. I know that they both lost a lot of family members. We also have former staff. The program that we run in Gaza is a youth program, so we're also very concerned about all the youth that has gone through the program. And, uh, a lot of lives have been lost, thankfully not our staff specifically. Uh, they're also doing work. I mean, they're surviving, but they're also actually distributing food and other necessary products right now. How did you end up at um, AFSC? I was working uh, at San Jose State University, as you said. I was a lecturer. And there, there is a human rights program at San Jose State University. I, I, I'm a teacher at heart. I, I come from a lineage of teachers in my family. And so I really enjoy that work. And I also am an activist and I participated in activism as a part of the campus community. There was a chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine at San Jose State University, or still is actually. And uh, I was their faculty advisor when they first formed, I think it was 2015 or 2014, something like that. They wanted the, the, to launch a divestment campaign to ask the university to divest from the Israeli occupation. I knew that that's something students do, but I had very little information on that. And so I reached out. I, I looked for resources for them, trying to help them do that. And the best resource I found was the American Friends Service Committee uh, Investigate website, which I now run. And so I uh, contacted uh, the director of my program, who is now my boss at AFSC, uh, Dove Baum, and she was so helpful in, uh, to us in the university, uh, to the students, helping us do the research on, on what the university is invested in, helping us understand the world of investments and how universities are invested, helping us talk about that more. 
intelligently and helping us prepare for campus hearings and things like that. I was very impressed with his work and I, I'm, I'm a researcher. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very interested in research that is applicable to real life problems and not just theoretical academic applications. And so I saw a job offer. I saw a job uh, opening from the same office that helped me as a faculty member, and I applied and got the job. As strategic research coordinator at AFSC, you run the Investigate Project. Give us an example of what a day in the job is like. Days can vary dramatically. A good day is a day where I have a good chunk of time, maybe four or five hours, to just sit in front of the computer and do research. So Investigate is a website and database that people can uh, access from anywhere, uh, investigate.info. Uh, we routinely track companies that are involved in, in, the, in the Israeli occupation. And like you said earlier, in the US prison industry and the US uh, border and uh, surveillance industries. And we maintain that database. We keep track of all these companies and what they do. We have more than 250 publicly traded companies on the database. And so it's just a lot of work and I personally enjoy keeping it up to date for the public and for activist groups. So that's my favorite thing to do. My second favorite thing to do is to help activists actually use that information. Just like I needed that information as a faculty member in a university, uh, we still support many student groups that try to get their universities to divest. We support other people working on their within institutions that they want to divest, if it's unions, if it's cities, if it's churches, museums. And uh, we also support activists who need information about a particular company that they, they want to target, if it's a private prison company, if it's a prison phone provider, if it's a company doing work to militarize the U.S.-Mexico border. You know, we, we are in touch with many groups and groups come to us to ask for help when they want to target these companies. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the resource that you've put together. Since October 7th, the United States has transferred 10,000 tons of weapons to Israel as Israel conducts what many scholars have called a genocidal campaign in Gaza. I spent some time looking through your resource. You've compiled quite a lot of information on the weapons uh, manufacturers that are sending weapons to Israel directly or the ones that manufacture weapons that the U.S. purchases that are then sent and then also ones that Israel purchases with U.S. funds. Can you give us an overview of these weapons transfers and place this into context in terms of other wars going on? What is unique perhaps about this, the scale of these transfers to Israel at this time? We started doing this project during the attacks because we saw a lot of need for that information. We're members of many coalitions and groups were always asking and coming to us and asking, well, can you tell us something about the weapons being used and the weapon transfers? We always do that research as part of our ongoing work on, on the occupation. You know, the military aspect of the occupation is a big chunk of that. We usually wait for after attacks end to start collecting this information. There were, unfortunately, as you know, multiple large-scale assaults on Gaza since uh, 2008. And we always wait a few weeks or months after the attacks are done and then start collecting the information because it typically takes time for information to, to pop up. 
this case, because the attacks are just not ending anytime soon, unfortunately, and because of the accusations and allegations of genocide, and because the need was so great for immediate information, we decided to track it as it happens, which is very challenging, actually. So like you said, there are multiple ways in which weapons are transferred. A lot of weapons are made in Israel. There are three large Israeli companies that make a lot of the weapons that the Israeli military uses. There are other countries in the world that provide some weapons and some components, but by far, the United States is the main enabler of this war. This is evident by the urgency in which these weapons are transferred, their quantity, and also we have quotes from Israeli generals saying, you know, we really need these weapons now and we cannot sustain these attacks. We cannot sustain the campaign on Gaza if we don't have the continuous flow of weapons from the United States. That means the United States and some of these companies have a direct role in war crimes and potentially genocide. It also means that they have a way to make it stop. You know, the United States supports Israel, of course, in many, many ways. Diplomacy, uh, shielding the, the Israel in the United Nations, and providing weapons and, and in and other ways. All of these ways are leverage points that the United States could use if it wanted to, to stop or diminish these attacks. The fact that U.S. companies are involved also makes them responsible and says that they also have the power to influence the course of events. And the fact that they're not doing that is not surprising, I have to say, unfortunately, but it is disappointing. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Dr. Noam Perry, the Strategic Research Coordinator of the American Friends Service Committee's Action Center for Corporate Accountability. We're discussing corporate complicity in military occupation and apartheid in Palestine and Israel, and the weapons manufacturers fueling Israel's genocidal assault in Gaza. Uh, you asked what's unique about these transfers compared to other conflicts or other times. One thing that you already mentioned is the, the allegations of genocide. You know, there are many conflicts and many wars happening around the world, of course. Uh, it's rare that there is such a clear case that seems to, to, be, seems to be genocide. So, you know, we have the ICJ case, of course, that, we, that is happening right now as we speak. I think you're airing this a bit later, so it will be a few days old. Uh, we have a case in the United States where uh, the, the Center for Constitutional Rights has uh, sued the Biden administration for complicity in genocide. That itself, just the accusation or the allegation of genocide, makes it unique and creates a higher standard for the United States government and for the companies that are involved. Uh, the other thing that is somewhat unique is something that I also already mentioned is the fact that the weapons that are being sent are used as they're being sent. So these are not theoretical shipments that will replenish stockpiles for a future war. These, these are weapons that Israel needs right now. And there are already stories in Israeli media about how they need to ration their uh, ammunition use and uh, you know they're very considerate now of how much they're using because they want to be prepared for anything any any scenario and that makes it unique that that's not something we saw before and the third thing i think that makes it unique as far as i can see is the level of secrecy it's very hard to do this research 
because the United States government is not sharing almost any information about what it's sending. There are very few mechanisms that require the United States government to say what it's sending. And the, as far as I can see, they're doing whatever they can to avoid these mechanisms, uh, either to you know, not reach the threshold of notification to Congress, for example, to avoid naming the companies that are involved. So just to kind of make our job a little bit harder. If you compare, for example, I just looked a few days ago, the, the State Department has the, the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs. If you go there, you see all the press releases that they've issued about the weapons sent to Ukraine since the beginning of the war with Russia, and, and there are lists. So there's a long disc description of how the U.S. is supporting the Ukraine, and then there's a list of weapons that have been sent since the beginning of the war. And if you compare that to, there was one press release about how the United States supports Israel, and it doesn't say anything about, it, it says something very vague about uh, arms transfers, but it doesn't provide any details about what has been transferred or given to Israel. All these things together, I think, make it a unique challenge for us to, and why we do this work, because we think it's worthwhile. We think the public needs to understand what's going on and deserves to know, especially when it comes to weapons that are bought with uh, American taxpayers' money. Yeah, I was able to interview Josh Paul several weeks ago, and he gave us a very detailed explanation of the failed process to provide transparency and also to provide accountability for U.S. weapons transfers. I know we're heading towards potential votes on the package of weapons that the U.S. will send Israel at least $14 billion in military aid. I understand there's a part of that uh, weapons request has language which even further shrouds the transfer of weapons to the, the war reserve stock allies Israel stockpile. And I know that some senators have recently signed on to a letter that they will not support that uh, amendment to the request. So we're certainly heading towards uh, potentially with also Bernie Sanders' resolution, a time of increased scrutiny of these weapons transfers to Israel. Of course, none of this would exist out many of these weapons manufacturers and companies having already existed and been producing weapons in the first place. The year that I spent living in the West Bank and going through checkpoints and seeing sort of this technology of surveillance and repression, Actually, after my first time there in the summer of 2014, I came back to the United States. I went to the southern border with Mexico, and I witnessed these surveillance towers. And I asked our tour guide, and he got back to me later about it. And he said that they were surveillance towers that were installed by Elbit Systems. So uh, that led to, to some thinking on my part, and I started to see how there is a real business interest in these weapons transfers, there's a business interest in some of this surveillance technology. And I wanted to hear your thoughts about that, you know, as a scholar and a researcher of, of the weapons industry. Elbit Systems is such a good example. It's an Israeli company. It's based in Haifa in Israel. It's the largest weapons manufacturer in Israel. There are three large ones. Two of them are state-owned. That's Rafael and uh, Israeli Aerospace Industries. And Elbit system is it's publicly traded, but it's not government owned, and it's the largest one 
It is deeply involved with the Israeli military when it designs weapons. It designs them specifically for the Israeli military based on the on their needs. You know, there's a revolving door of top executives that used to be generals or or uh, lower ranking officers in the Israeli military. They know exactly what the military needs. They develop it with the military for the military. And then, of course, they export it to the rest of the world and slap the battle-proven sticker on the weapon. Of course, it was battle-proven on Palestinian bodies. And, and of course, for a potential consumer as, as a, a different military, if it's Finland or, or India or whoever, to know that the system is battle-proven and, and works and that Israel uses it, makes it more more lucrative more of a lucrative buy. Elbit Systems, while being an Israeli company, is actually a global company now. Set up production lines in the United States. Like you said, for example, they make the surveillance towers. It's called uh, IFT, Integrated, I forget what the F stands for, Integrated Something Tower. There are several dozens of those across, uh, across the U.S.-Mexico border that put large swaths of that area under constant surveillance. Whatever Elbit Systems makes in the United States, by the way, Israel can also buy using US taxpayers' money through the foreign military sales program. There are multiple Israeli companies that have set up production lines in the United States in order for Israel to be able to buy from them, to continue buying from them using the foreign military sales program. There are also Israeli businessmen who come to the United States to set up companies here in the U.S. specifically so that Israel could buy from them using the foreign military sales funds. That's fascinating. It didn't used to be the case because Israel used to be able to use some of the foreign military funding to buy from Israeli companies, and uh, that, that has ended. I live in Hartford, Connecticut. There's a Colt factory here that activists actually demonstrated outside of. There's an Elbit uh, office in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which has been the target of numerous demonstrations. And I see that your website very clearly lists many of the companies involved in uh, Israel's occupation, and in this case, specifically Israel's campaign in Gaza, what can people learn from this database on your website? I think, first of all, people need to know the truth about what's going on with so much secrecy and so much uh, deliberate obfuscation on behalf of the government and the companies. We, we try to expose what is happening and to be truthful and to, and to uh, give an honest portrayal of reality. So that, that's a, a very first le basic level. Um, I think once you know these things, and of course you mentioned Colt, which is in your uh, town, and Elbit Systems, and uh, we have right now on this page, which we met, which we put all this information on, we have more than 30 companies. Most of them are US companies. And there have been people protesting these companies, and I think these companies should hear from us directly as the people that we don't approve of their work. We don't want weapon manufacturers 
We especially don't want weapon manufacturers to send weapons to Israel because we know they're used in war crimes. So I think uh, it's not a bad idea to protest more uh, against these and against other companies that are involved in uh, the Israeli occupation and involved in human rights violations in general. And that's part of our role as, as people who live here to, to try to hold these companies accountable as much as we can. Uh, another thing that uh, we try to help people do is divest. So a lot of people have personal investments. A lot of people have pension funds. A lot of people are members of organizations that are uh, that have larger investments. If you're, you know, maybe someone's uh, involved in a union or a church or a university or any institution that holds investments, of course, banks. Uh, you know, we want to tell them that if they're holding stocks in these companies, and many of these companies are publicly traded, they're making a profit. Immediately after October 7th, many of these companies on these lists had their share prices skyrocket because, of course, this is good for business. Wall Street knows that uh, Israel would need more weapons. That means more orders of weapons. That means more revenue for these companies. If you own a stock of such a company, you directly benefited from the Israeli attacks on Gaza. So I'm not saying that to make people feel bad about themselves. Of course, we live we live in a capitalist world. You know, we all are just takes to scratch the surface to see what we're personally involved in. But it does mean that we have a, a direct relationship to what's going on in Gaza, and also maybe a responsibility to do something about that. And if people don't want to be profiting from that, then maybe they can talk to their pension fund broker or their personal broker even better if, if they're part of an institution that holds investments. Uh, maybe you can start talking to people and say, hey, you know, do you know actually what we're invested in? Should we be invested in this? I don't feel good about that. You know, what can we do? We help a lot of groups and a lot of institutions try to figure out some want to divest just from the weapon companies uh, because they don't want to be associated with genocide. Some want to divest from the Israeli occupation, and we definitely have a long history and expertise about how to do that. Some want to divest from apartheid, which we are just trying to learn now how to do. It's It might be a bit more complicated, but we can help people think about that as well. We actually are involved in a network of organizations. It's called Apartheid Free. Apartheid-free.org is a website that people can check out if they want, which calls on any institution to declare that they want to be apartheid-free and then think what that means. So for some, it might mean divestment if they have investments. For some, it might mean looking at their purchases, you know, what they buy and their supply chain. For, for some, it might mean other things. But I think we all have a responsibility to think about our position in the world it's very easy to say, oh, Israel is bad, the United States government is bad, but we also have a role. I mean, we are part of these systems. I, <laughs> I happen to be a citizen of Israel and of the United States, so I, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I have multiple ways in which I'm implicated. I think one always needs to figure out what to do about that. And again, it's not about making people feel bad, because we don't need that, but it is about being more active in the world. And learning that our role is not just to vote every four years, but our role 
goes beyond that. And we need to figure out how to conduct ourselves in a world that where so much, so many bad things happen and how we position ourselves in regard to them. Noam Perry, the Strategic Research Coordinator of the American Friends Service Committee's Action Center for Corporate Accountability. I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for joining Understanding Israel-Palestine today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.